Now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find this on page 370, where we will consider Nehemiah chapter 2. We started this series last week that here in the fall, we will work chapter by chapter through this book. And I'll try at the beginning to summarize a little bit of what we went over last week uh, so that if you weren't with us, you don't feel left out. But it reads, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiath the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate and the dragon spring into the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. <clears throat> and then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanbalatin, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right 
or claim in Jerusalem. And that'll conclude our reading for today. One of the things that continues from the first chapter to this is Nehemiah's grief over the injustice that he has heard about that his people in Israel are still experiencing. And so the background is that a few generations before Nehemiah's time, his own nation lost in battle uh, to the Babylonian Empire. And oftentimes when you lost in battle, many of your people were then taken as captives to be slaves in another country. And that empire that had conquered Israel, the Babylonian Empire, was itself conquered by the Persian Empire. And in the beginning of this book, which is actually Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah originally are a combined book, there is Cyrus, king of Persia, who now is in charge and sees that there are all these people living that aren't from this place, and there's much of their furnishings from the temple, and so he, as an act of goodwill toward them, sends people back to rebuild the temple and sends back the furnishings that they had as, as an act of goodwill so that these people wouldn't become rebellious against him as a new leader. And so the first person, uh, priest that went was Zerubbabel, and then a few years or decades after Ezra went, and Nehemiah in the first chapter heard back, asked how things were going. An altar had been reestablished, worship was starting to take place, but the news that he got was in spite of that good work, there was still so much more work to be done, and specifically that the city gates were still in a position of ruin and had been destroyed by fire. Now, that can refer to what the Babylonians did generations before, but it also likely refers to recent opposition, that while Zerubbabel was there and while Ezra was there and there were attempts to work, they were finding opposition to it. And so there was still people around that were preventing good work from happening around the city. And so the gates were not reestablished. And when he, <clears throat> when he heard that, he was crushed. And so the first chapter was just his expression of grief at that reality. Because to hear that your home city, that the walls are destroyed and the gates aren't up, is to hear that everyone you love is vulnerable. They're not safe. There, there aren't yet reestablished courts of justice where people could bring disputes and have, have a score settled between other people. And so, great, they can come if they want, and they can offer a sacrifice, and they can worship, but they, most of them do it in fear. Most of them doing it, wondering if something bad might happen to them while they're on their way. Because you built out the city gates to protect everyone inside of it. And so people would often move within the walls so that they had that barrier of protection. So when Nehemiah heard that the walls were destroyed, he grieved over it. Now when we pick up in chapter 2, we're a few months later, but though he said nothing to the king himself, either the king heard from other people that Nehemiah was really sad, or the king could just pick up on it. Because it said that Nehemiah, in his grief, was fasting and praying. And so you could probably just look at him and say, you look like you lost a few pounds. Uh, maybe you're a little more pale than normal. Like, you're trying as hard as you can to smile. But the king could just tell, you're grieving something. Uh, but by his own requirement as a cupbearer to the king, 
he, he had access to the king in ways very few people did. But therefore, in the king's presence, he was not supposed to be a downer. He was supposed to be in a good mood, ready to obey whatever the orders were, and yes, sir, and how can I make your life better? So in his vocation, he had this responsibility to, to be on and to have a good face. But as much as he did that, and the, Nehemiah tells us this, I had not been sad in his presence, but clearly something was giving me away. There was still this enduring grief over what was happening to my people in Jerusalem. And so he experienced this grief in ways that were visible. And it is appropriate when we hear about sin, when we hear that people are suffering, when we hear that people are vulnerable to theft or crime, that that should break our hearts that we shouldn't just hear that as information and say, oh well, you know, tough. Uh, that God, as he originally made the world, made it good and made it in a way that we would be able to get along with one another. That there would be no theft or murder or stealing or insecurity experienced in this world. And so we should continue to grieve and be sensitive to the realities of this world. We have a bit of a difficulty in our own day because of the access to information that we have that we hear so many stories and so many bad reports that we can become desensitized to it and not take the appropriate time to actually feel the pain that others are going through, to enter into it and adequately grieve over it. It's a temptation that is unique to our situation in the amount of information that we have. But we would do well to heed Nehemiah's example in taking the time to really think about what others go through. Because if we don't allow ourselves to grieve over it, we won't be moved in compassion to then do something about it. But he grieved it. He grieved it for months. Grieved it in a way that even as he was trying his best not to reveal it, it was obvious to anyone who had proximity to him, that his heart was crushed. The next thing we see is his wisdom in politics. I remember uh, when I visited Amy as, when she was a missionary in Paraguay, uh, I was a student at the University of Akron at the time, and I was a political science major, and so when people were asking me what I was studying, and I said, I'm studying political science, they said, oh, we have all of the politics, but none of the science. And I said, yeah, I don't know that we, this is really any different here. That's just the name of the, the degree. Um, but Nehemiah in this passage is pretty savvy. He has a position of influence within the Persian Empire. To be the cup bearer is to have proximity and access to the king that very, very few people have. And so there's an opportunity to interact with him. He's also responsible. He has to be trusted to be this close. And not only does he have to be trusted, but he is the person who is willing when wine is brought to the king and it needs to be tested to make sure this isn't poisonous and this isn't going to take out the king, it's going to be Nehemiah that goes, not the king. That's the nature of his responsibility. And so he's, we don't know exactly how long he's had this opportunity, but when the king notices his grief, he could almost have a fear that, oh no, I'm about to be fired. Uh, I'm, he can see what's wrong and I shouldn't be acting this way. It shouldn't be obvious to him. But there's enough comfort level there 
that he says, first, let the king live forever. He wants the king to be affirmed in his leadership, though this king is not a king of Israel. But then he appeals to him to say, why should I not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lie in ruin and its gates have not been destroyed by fire? And so he's wise in his affirmation of the king. He doesn't want to appear at all ungrateful to him for this job that he has and this access that he has. But he also has to be honest about his heart and his emotions and what it is that he's feeling. And the king says then, what do you want? He says, I want to go back. I want you to send me back to rebuild. So the king thinks about it, and the king has basically one condition. For how long? which just says something about Nehemiah. The king's like, you might be able to talk me into this, but I need you back. If you tell me you're, you're going and you're gone forever, I'm not losing you. And so he has to have a plan in place. And so he communicates a plan of some sort, time. As, as he's been grieving for four months, he's not just been crying, he's been thinking about it. What is it that needs to be done? How would I do it? Who would I get involved in the process? And so when he gives a time frame to the king, the king gives permission. And he doesn't stop there. Thank you for your permission. It would also really help me if I could have a few letters from you. A letter that gives me permission along the way that if anyone stops me says, I'm allowed to do this. I have the authority of the king to do it. But I also, I need materials to do what I need to do. And so I also need a letter to be able to go to Asaph and say, bring the timber that you're responsible for in the forest, I need it for the walls in Jerusalem. He's also wise when he gets to Jerusalem, it says he doesn't want everyone initially to know why he's there. He has a bit of an entourage with him. He's got security and army details following him. So there's people would be talking to say, what's this? Who's this official delegation from the king? And he knows that. So he waits till nighttime to do most of his reconnaissance. He really wants to assess the entire city walls to know what's going on. Here again, it's a display of wisdom. And only when he now sees it for himself, knows exactly the level of work that's gonna be involved, does he then bring it up to other people. In every one of these steps, he is very shrewd and wise about how to get things done and how to bring multiple parties together to accomplish a goal. There is much wisdom as he executes his authority. And I think we could all agree we need wisdom in politics. <laughs> Especially as much as we think there isn't wisdom in politics, it's all the more reason for us to pray that there would be more of it because we need more of it. We need people to learn how to get along with each other, to know what it is that needs to be done so that people with competing interests and ideas could be brought together in a unified way to get work done. Amen? We need that. We all do. Because whoever we like or maybe voted for, our political leaders represent and affect every one of us, whether we voted for them or not. And so the scriptures regularly encourage us to pray for all of our leaders and pray for wisdom so that things could be done well and we as Christians want to grow in our knowledge of how the world works and how things get done and what it is what is required to engage with other people that don't share our convictions or ideas and Nehemiah demonstrates this he also demonstrates strength against opposition the situation that grieves his heart it doesn't grieve everyone's heart 
he realizes there are leaders in place, roughly in Samaria, just north of Jerusalem, who don't want him to come. They don't want him to inspect what's going on because they don't want more reports that bad things are happening because they actually have a vested interest in the injustice that's going on. And sadly, that is also a reality of our world. We're not all on the same page in saying what's right and what's wrong. There's some things that we say are wrong that other people are saying, hey, this is exactly how we want it to be. And we found a way to profit off this wrong. And so we want to keep it wrong as long as we can because our lives are getting better as long as this keeps staying wrong. And Nehemiah knows ahead of time he's going to encounter that. He's not going to get a high five from everyone as he goes about this rebuilding project. Some people will help him rebuild, but some people, and specifically the people that are named in the text, are people of local governing authority, and they don't want him there. They don't want him to do the work. They don't want an honest report to be submitted about what the condition of the city is like. And we need to accept that, that there will always be opposition to the work that we do. There's always a naysayer. There's always a bad attitude. Uh, Lightheartedly and uh, having three kids, uh, they're all boys, uh, and I realize that even though they're all boys, they are three completely different personalities. And uh, it comes out in all kinds of ways, but my middle one is my naysayer. He's opposed to everything we do. I don't care what we take him to at the end of the day. Like, how was that? Mm, Not so great. Mm, not real good. We took him uh, on Wednesday. Mito, who was with us, uh, spoke to a, a group in Cincinnati, and so we took him down there and then visited my mom and sister. So we said, let's make it a family trip, and let's take them to go see the Ark, the big boat down in Kentucky, and walk around. And my oldest is just, this is the greatest day ever. And my middle one's like, can we get out of here, please? What, can, can we just go outside? It's like, oh, this is lovely. I don't think I'll ever find something that everyone agrees on uh, together, and I just have to accept that and realize he had a really good time even though he has a really negative attitude. Uh, It's just uh, wired in there uh, to find, he's more Serbian than the rest, I think, uh, (laughs) to find a way to criticize everything. But for Nehemiah, this this is real opposition. This is people who, they don't want a report done. They've been lazy. They've been getting away with things. And they don't want an honest assessment to be told back to the king of Persia about the injustice that's been done. And Nehemiah realizes the only way to make progress is to really understand and know what's going on. What's really broken? Why is it broken? How is it broken? He's doing research because we can only make progress on the truth. We can't make progress on a lie. And when there are people in positions of authority who are content to lie for the sake of progress, that is a house of cards that falls apart pretty quick. Nehemiah wants the truth even though the truth is heartbreaking. He wants to know what's going on. And in all of this, we see a tremendous amount of faith that he has in God. As we read the story, Nehemiah doesn't give himself credit for being really wise in politics. Like, I knew how to sweeten up the king and I knew how to get a letter, but all along the way, as doors open for him to do this work, the text reiterates that this is happening because the good hand of God is upon him. God is blessing him in this. He has faith in God that as he applies his wisdom and his knowledge, as his heart is broken and he's pursuing the knowledge of the truth, that God is in all of this and blessing him. 
And so the quote in the back of your handout, I use it often because I just find it really helpful from Dallas Willard. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Nehemiah is hard at work, bringing everything to bear in his position, in his influence, uh, in the entourage that's given to him, in the resources of timber. He is a hard worker. But at no point does he then bring the spotlight upon himself and say, everyone, trust me to be the one who will be able to do this. No, he invites them to have faith in God just like he has faith in God. But faith is not just a set of ideas or beliefs. It, it is evidenced by action, by activity, by hard work. And so if we were to say, Nehemiah, how do we know you have faith in God? He'd say, look at everything I'm doing. You don't stand against this opposition and move uh, with all of these pieces in play, all of these pieces of a puzzle to put together unless you have faith in God. I'm not trusting that I'm now the Messiah that's going to bring this all together. But I believe that God has me here for a reason and his hand is upon me. He has something that he wants to do through me and with me and he's actually, he wants to do it through us. And so eventually he invites everyone into it. In verse 17, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that has been upon me for good. And so then again, when the opposition comes, why are you doing this? Isn't this rebellion against the king, the naysayers say? Nehemiah replies, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. That's the sort of faith that we need, trusting that God is with us, his hand is upon us, he is blessing us. And we use that not as an excuse not to work, not to try, but actually the very motivation to work harder than we ever have before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our opportunity to look back in history and to see a servant of yours who lived in very different circumstances, but whose life, whose life gives us so much to think about when we consider our roles and our responsibilities today that we want to make a difference and an influence in the education of young people in our city, the health care of people in our city. We want good jobs to be provided for those who desire it and need it. We want affordable housing for people to have shelter in turbulent weather and times when we think of all the things that represent increasing security and safety and when we see that so many of those things are still lacking and so many people are still vulnerable, we can become overwhelmed by how much work there is to do. And so we do pray for wisdom that you would help us to find ways to bring unlikely partners together to help get things done that we, even as people of faith, would find creative ways to work together with people of no faith or of different faith for the good of our community, all the while trusting that your hand is upon us, that it, it ultimately doesn't rest upon us 
uh, that, that we aren't the savior of anyone, but that we have the wonderful opportunity and, and privilege to be a part of your work. And so as we sing now about your healing and restoring power, we pray that you would continue to build up our faith to trust that you are a God of wholeness and a God of healing, that you desire to bring about goodness in this world through our work. Help us to have faith in your blessing and goodness and mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.